Hey, welcome to another episode of uh, Startup Sales. Today we're going to be speaking with Spencer Dent. He's an expert on uh, win-loss analysis, which is basically looking at all the deals that you either won or lost and analyzing them and learning from them so that you could uh, improve uh, for the next time. So he's going to share a lot of uh, different ways on how to improve your sales process and how to learn from, from the people that you've been speaking with. And he's also going to be speaking about like the three different things that you could do to make you a great seller. It's going to be a terrific episode and I hope you enjoy it. And if you're an early stage startup and you're looking to get to your first million dollars in uh, annual revenue, then I've created a boot camp program uh, for you where we work on uh, how to operate your first sales calls, your, your demos, your POCs, and building a sales process around all that. So if you're interested, go to startupsales.io. That's startupsales.io for more information. Let's get to today's episode with Spencer. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Hey, Spencer, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to, uh, to have you on today. I, I know you've, we've been talking for quite a while about the, having you on here, so uh, really excited for it. Can you get, tell everybody a little bit about uh, your background and, and what kind of experience you have? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, we're excited to be here. Appreciate you guys uh, doing this with us. Um, my background, I'm one of the founders of a company called Closed, C-L-O-Z-D. Uh, and we are a win-loss analysis company. Basically what we do is we help companies figure out why they win and lose deals in a systematic way. Uh, we've been in business, we ourselves are a, are a startup. We've been in business since 2017. Um, <clears throat> have grown from a basement startup to now we have around 15 employees and about 70 customers. So I know I empathize a lot with our listeners in terms of what they're going through. Um, we are, our client base is pretty solid. We work with companies like Salesforce, Twilio, uh, VMware, SAP, um, and and help those companies figure out systematically through a combination of analytics and, and win loss interviews and surveys why they're winning and losing. Um, my background is I was a consultant for Bain and Company. Worked there for a few years, and I joined Qualtrics. I was the first hire they made into their sales strategy operations function and help them grow that business and where they went from uh, doing roughly about $50 million in revenue to about $550 million in revenue annually. So I saw an at scale software company blow up. Um, and then myself and the other co-founder of Closed, Andrew Peterson, he and I left to start this company. So we've been doing this for a little bit. It's been great. Um, really excited to talk a little bit about this topic because I think it's impactful, especially for early stage companies. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's extremely important. So what, what is a win-loss? Yeah, it's analysis? a good question. It's one of those like nebulous terms, right? Um, yeah. that, that you might ask 10 different people, 10 for the definition, and you might get 10 different answers. The way I view win-loss is it's a systematically understanding 
why you win and lose deals in your market. And there are a variety of ways that you can go about doing that. And so there's different tools at your disposal and you can pull those, use those different tools. But essentially, what tools do you use? A combination of analytics of your pipeline, engaging your sales team, and engaging the buyers to figure out, triangulate into why am I winning and losing deals? Um, and companies, depending upon the size of your company, the types of deals your companies use or, or, or try to close, you may be using a handful, uh, one or more of those methods, if that makes sense. So we can talk a little bit on here about how you might think about which ones to deploy. Okay. Well, before we get into that, like diving deeper, kind of like what, what am I looking for here? What, a, why would a startup care about this? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny, right? It's like of all the companies that should care about this, a startup should care because it's essentially win loss is about where it's where the rubber meets the road. You're building a product or developing a set of services. You're marketing it and selling it. You're figuring out what to price it at. And then you're, then you're running a sales process to try to sell it to people. All of those different efforts of your company, especially in B2B sales or in B2B environments, all culminate at the point of decision of will I buy this or not buy this, right? And so what's funny is from win-loss, the types of feedback you get from buyers especially help you know which of those dials you need to tune. What product functionality am I really missing? How is my pricing model really set up to, to make it easy for people to adopt me? Is my sales team effectively communicating what we do and effectively differentiating us against other alternatives in the market? And you can go across all those things, but ultimately everything you do as a startup or as a Fortune 10 company is around how do you organize to go to market. So especially when you're early on, right? You're trying to get traction in your market. You're trying to figure out who is my target persona? Who am I trying to sell to? What do they care about? What features and functionality should I be highlighting to those companies? And how do I need to go build out a moat to make me attractive to them? So of all the stages, win-loss is pretty applicable. The difference is how do you go about doing it as a smaller company versus as a larger company? Okay. So, but at the, as a early stage startup, I'm still figuring out my whole sales process. Right. Uh, is it, you think it's still important at that stage? Exactly. Because how else are you going to figure it out? Yeah. Right. Like, so, like I'm, I'm trying to figure out my, my sales process. Well, you can come up with ideas on your own or you can just go ask your buyers. Hey, why didn't you, why did you choose my competitor over me? Help me understand that. <laughs> okay. And so is that what you're doing? You're like, that's what you recommend that early stage founders do is like, go to the people that they lost deals with and just ask them what happened? Yeah, that's that's one way of doing it. If you have budget, if your economics work out, it's always better to get a third party or get distance between who was selling and the buyer. You, The more you can get, hey, I wasn't the one selling it. I'm here as an objective, as, a, as objective of a third party as possible, then great. Mm -hmm. But... Um, if you can't do that, then have somebody else in the organization or, or do whatever you can. Now, if you're one person in a basement or three people in the basement, then you don't really have that. But if you approach the sales process well and you develop good relationships with the buyers and, and can detach yourself emotionally a little bit from the outcome, especially on losses – then you're more likely to A, get them to participate and B, get them to be very 
uh, objective in what they share with you. I like that. And, and it shouldn't be like the sales manager because then with coming in as the manager of sales, it's like they don't want to reflect bad on the, on the person and 100%. cause them to lose their job. Well, and, and think about it too in a small company, right? If I'm the head of product, right? So let's say, let's say we have a startup here and there's 10 people. Having the VP of product even do the interview could be dangerous, right? Because why, what if I told you, Adam, hey, dude, I, I chose not to go with you because your product sucks, <laughs> right? I, yeah. I, I, I may not want to share that. So you should think about like who is somebody detached, right? As detached as possible that, that can come in and have a pretty candid conversation. Now, I, there's companies that exist that can do this and they bring best practice approaches and all those types of things for how you ask questions, how you schedule the interviews, how you transcribe and pull them all together. If you're in a really smart, you know, if you're in a bootstrap startup without, without a lot of, you know, funds, that may not be as practical, right? But especially as you start to get traction and you have deals flowing through pipeline at a rapid rate, you want to keep a pulse on what's happening. And so at that point, it may make sense economically to go outside. Okay. Now, Let's say I want to go out and approach some of my my lost customers. Uh, do you ask the same questions uh, like to the to every person, or do you focus on different things depending on what it's happened? A great in question. The it's process? a great question. It's a great question. It's one of the reasons why we actually started this company. Um, so I worked at Qualtrics. Qualtrics is a survey software company. Think about the idea of doing conducting a survey over the phone, and a how disengaging that is for the person that you're talking to if you're doing an interview, and B, um, how you don't really double click. So <clears throat> a lot of the prevailing practices that researchers and, and you know the PhDs that conduct this, that, tr that go about conducting this type of research, they almost design a questionnaire and ask the same question every time. That is not the right approach in, in based off of my experience and as, a, as an operator as a, and now as a practitioner. What you want to do is you want to have a, more of a guide of these are the types of topics I want, you, I want to talk about with each person. But when I hit a nerve, right? So when I say, tell me what your perception was of our sales process. And the person says, well, your demo just didn't hit it. It wasn't great. Yeah. Well, I should double, triple, quadruple click into that. And, and go off script to understand that. So the answer to your question is don't be too rigid about having to ask specific questions, especially in a specific order. What's more important is to understand the heart of their decision. Why did they do what they did? Why did they choose you? Why did they not choose you? Why did they choose not to do anything at this point? Because that happens a lot too in sales processes. So really figuring out the heart of what they did and why they did it is paramount and if you have to go off script to do that great so it's kind of like a lot like a sales process where you know you're qualifying the buyer like you you ask a, a vague question to kind of get a general area and then you just keep diving down exactly exactly because what you'll find like i'll give you a perfect example we we do interviews all we do thousands of interviews at closed of, of b2b buyers and the decisions can range from mil, multi-million dollar decisions to you know five thousand dollar decisions What's funny is you could be interviewing anybody along that spectrum and you say, hey, Adam, how, what was it like, um, what was your perspective on the product? As you evaluated the product, what did you like the most about it and what was missing? And if you come back to me and say, well, you know, the product was great. I really liked the product, but that's not why we made our decision. 
How much yeah. time should I spend asking you, well, what did you think of our APIs and integrations? What did you think of the, you know, UI and look and feel if it's if it, if all their feedback is around how the pricing model doesn't doesn't work and scale with their organization. I should go talk about that and why that was a problem. And so we we tend to think about this very much like you said, like a, like a sales discovery. Let's let's listen, actively listen to what they're telling us and not just the words they're saying, but how they're saying them and double click in to figure out what's happening. But shouldn't you, you said like, okay, they say it was, we love the product, but shouldn't you spend some time there to also get like yeah. a positive, like, well, what about the product was most valuable to you? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Like, so, so in those cases, right? Oh, well, we like the product. The product was great. It, I, I'm thinking about this as I have how much I have a certain amount of time from this person, right? So if I know that they didn't choose me, but they liked my product, I'll ask them a couple things that they liked about the product and I'll figure out if there were any gaps in the product still. But if they, if what the buyer is telling me is that the main reason they didn't choose me is because of something else, I should go understand that something else in depth. So you're, you're totally spot on. So we, we think of the this as more have a series of questions or topics you want to cover with the buyer and cover them, but just don't go 30 feet deep on everyone because a you don't have time to do it and b <laughs> those things would you're going to waste time because some things didn't matter okay and then how do you differentiate though like when somebody says oh the pricing wasn't good like uh, it was just too expensive how do you differentiate like the pricing actually just being too high and the salesperson not delivering enough value it's a great question and, and pricing is the most complex topic to cover in these interviews because oftentimes what you'll hear though the number one excuse sales reps will give you for why they lose is price. We lost on price. That means nothing. It literally means nothing because what we find as we do interviews is price can mean their dollar amount was higher or our dollar amount was higher than the competitor's dollar amount. Okay. It, but, but what does that mean? It could also mean our dollar amount was the same as their dollar amount, but they threw more stuff in. Yeah. Right. It could mean our dollar amount was actually lower than their dollar amount, but they appreciated our, they didn't like our pricing model. They were afraid of the risk inherent in our pricing model for their business and the way it would scale over time. It could mean they didn't like that we started out by pricing them at $100,000 and two quotes later we were at $40,000 and that made them immediately lose trust in us. They actually felt like it would have been better if we would have just said it's a hundred grand and it's going to be a hundred grand and we're going to hold that. So your question's spot on. It's the first thing you have to do is diagnose what was it about the pricing that didn't work? Is, is it absolute amounts or is it the model of which it represents or is it the risk inherent in how we do it? Or is it the way we presented it? That's a, then B is, well, if it's a value issue, there's great questions you can ask around value, around if these two products cost the exact same amount, which one would you choose and why? Yeah. That helps you understand value. If How do you justify the ROI investment? You have to make a business case for this. How do you justify the ROI of choosing this product over this product? Right. Asking questions about value and how they think about value is huge, but you're these things all kind of play together. So being able to really listen to what they're saying to you and, and tweak your 
your script to hit on the things that matter is the yeah. key to doing good win-loss interviews. Right? Also, so we're talking a lot about win- inter- interviews. There's other ways that you can get to this feedback, but we're focused a lot on interviews. So if you're talking to buyers, think about it like this. I think it's also important to to be a very good listener, not just ask these questions. Because like you said at the beginning, not just ask the questions but uh, and listen to the answers, but listen to how they answer. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times it's a subconscious thing that they, they're not – they're not aware of the fact that they were confused by the pricing. Right. Uh, and, but they just didn't like the pricing. We were too expensive. Totally. It, to- totally. You know, one of the things that happens on win-loss interviewing uh, and some of the programs that we run, we find that oftentimes buyers don't even know why they made the decision they made until they get in the conversation and start talking to you about the decision they made. Yeah. So they'll start out. Some buyers are very, you know, A plus B plus C equals D. We did not choose them because of this, this, and this. Others, as they talk, they start to formulate the answer and actually think through it. So it, that makes the active listening even, even that much more important. How, of what percentage would you say on average uh, do people actually respond to this? Yeah, great question. So, one, so we get probably, it depends on our clients, Certain personas are more willing to engage than others. On average, across our clients, we average a 30 to a 45% participation rate. Some of our clients actually even do better than that. Um, some, of, some of them do less than that. The biggest drivers for why it goes up or down are, A, the data quality in your CRM, right? If you give us 100 names and 35 of them bounce yeah. <laughs> because those people no longer work at the company or they have the wrong email addresses in the first place, obviously that impacts participation rates. Um, but in, in general, we tend to get pretty strong participation rates, especially relative to other ways of engaging buyers, right? So I worked for a survey software company. If you were to send surveys out to these people and you got more than a 3% participation rate, you are <laughs> crushing it, right? So that might work for certain companies. If you're, if you're like, for example, if you're a small ticket item and it's really hard for you to get lots of people on the phone and feel like you can get a decent sample, then send, you can send short surveys. Um, but if you send them a 20-question survey, know that you're going to get a 1% participation rate and you're going to have to incentivize them to get on the call, get on the call with you or to um, complete the survey. So just be aware of that going into it. Yeah. I, th- I think that it would have a lot to do with, with what kind of sales cycle they have and sales process that they've been through. That's right. That's yeah, right. They're, they're not going to answer you if, they're a fi- if you're a $50 a month uh, product. And that all you right. did is had one quick phone call five minutes long. Exactly. They might fill out a survey that's three or four questions. Yeah. Right? Like, hey, what did you think? But if you say, the di- but you're, t- you're, you're spot on right there, right? We, we will do interviews with people where it was a year-long sales cycle and for some of our clients. Most of our client sales cycles, I would say, are, are less than that, are more like the classic kind of SaaS sales cycle that might be one to four months but uh, some of them are, you know, year, year and a half long sales cycles. And in those cases, they almost fill all, all, almost all of these people. If you're meeting with them two, three, four times, they feel like a professional courtesy. They owe you a professional courtesy to, to, to give the feedback, yeah. um, especially if you engage a third party, right? Saying, hey, I, I was hired by this company because they want your feedback. Yeah. So do you do this as well for one opportunities? 100%, yeah. 
definitely, definitely. It's it, it, people always get entranced by the idea of the losses, right? Because yeah. losses are they're they're very like emotional and visceral and painful and you really want to understand why you wouldn't lose but companies also they, they fail to understand why they lose and guess what they fail to also codify and and write down the recipe of why they win yeah. and so it's been funny for us to with with clients where they they overemphasize the losses and we come back and say well let's just do a few wins for you and we'll help you see if there's a big difference because sometimes what's funny is sometimes you might have something that is the core reason why you lose and on your wins, it's also the core reason why you win. And so it's that's a very important swing factor. And you want to make sure that you get that right in your sales process and your marketing and your messaging, et cetera. And other times you'll find this thing only comes up on losses and we should watch out whenever it comes up. If a buyer has this concern, we're dead in the water until we go address it. Yeah. All right. You know, you said that there's like, you don't want to go with a list of questions because you'll sound like a robot and it's, <laughs> and yeah. it's, it's not fun to be interrogated, but right. you said to keep guidelines, uh, like different, different topics that you want to touch. What would those right. topics be? They're pretty straightforward, right? The typical topics are overview origination. How did this deal come about? What pain were you engaged in, in your organization? What was the challenge that you were trying to solve? Why were you trying to solve it? And how did this kick off, right? Um, you want to cover what they, what was the final decision and why was that the final decision? And then you'd think the uh, usual suspects, what is the actual product or service that they're offering and evaluate that? Like, what did you like or dislike about how they, what they sell how, and, and, help me understand where the weaknesses were in the offering as well as the strengths. We'll ask them about um, the sales process. What was it like working with the sales team? What was it like working with the reps? What was it like going through that experience? We'll ask them about the pricing model and, and pricing, right? Pricing obviously always has an impact. Um, and there's, there's best practice approaches for how you approach that, but you definitely always want to go there. We'll ask them about competitors, Right, and there's no. There, what's funny is there exists in today's world companies that are literally competitive intelligence companies, and what they do is they go out and they get, they scrape the web for your competitors' press releases, and they scrape the web for what your competitors are saying on their on their websites. But at the end of the day, the only competitive intelligence that really really matters is why did this think. buyer choose you or choose your competitor, yeah. and the richest source of competitive intel is from the buyer. So so we'll get things like, hey, when you went up against competitor X, we like to focus on the primary competitor. Why did, what did you like about them? What was strong that they offered? What, it, both from a product sales, pricing model, et cetera. And it's really interesting. I mentioned this a little earlier, but one of, one of the things that a lot of companies, especially the young companies don't understand, especially if you're an innovative company, you're a startup and you're doing something that other people haven't been doing before, how often are you losing because they just don't do anything? What do you right? mean Versus by don't do anything? you're losing to a specific competitor. Those are two different problems, and they have fundamental strategic impact. Like what you do and how you do it and how you run your business varies dramatically based off of if buyers aren't buying you because they're not doing anything versus buyers aren't buying you because they're choosing a competitor. And so knowing that is is important as well and and what's funny is like 
I'm I'm kind of ram I'm I'm kind of going hard here on this because I think it's important. I think it's valuable, especially for startups. Um, a lot of a lot of startups. The cheapest way to do this, Adam, is they'll they'll say, okay, I I don't have the time, effort, money, resources to do these interviews, to go out and talk to buyers myself or to hire a third party, which is always the prevailing best practice to do. I'll just get feedback from the sales from sales. Um, it's very biased. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a couple problems with that. So, so let me start with this. Some feedback is better than no feedback and reps oftentimes do, do have a very good perspective on why they won or lost, especially your best reps that can be objective. That said, reps are often wrong as to why they win and lose. And they're wrong for a couple reasons. One, the buyers don't tell them. <laughs> the buyers yeah. just don't tell them. Um, they lose contact with the buyers, and, and so the reps end up guessing. Or, you know, in some situations, the reps may be screwed up and they don't want to share what happened. But there is value in getting feedback from the reps, and there's certain ways you can get feedback from them that can be really engaging. The biggest thing I would tell anybody that's thinking about doing this and getting feedback from reps, A, be short and to the point in anything you ask them. Especially if it's automated, like in your if you're putting it in Salesforce or, or HubSpot, whatever CRM you you use, be careful how many questions you ask them because they won't fill it out and they won't be compliant. Um, two, think about is this a nice to know or a need to know question? Too many companies and people are incredibly academic and theoretical about capturing feedback from sales reps. And what they realize is that less is oftentimes more. And they ask way too many questions and they create really complex stuff so that A, the reps don't even know what to fill out and B, it takes so long that they just don't do it. Yeah. So or they or if, they just start to like just give quick short answers that aren't actually real answers. And just to useful. mark it off. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. So so Best practice, go to the buyers. If you can't go to the buyers for whatever reason, go to your reps. But if you, if you go to your reps, recognize that the way that you engage them is 90% of the battle. And what yeah. you ask them, how you ask them, when you ask them is almost more, is more important than getting a bunch of information that you may or may not use. Yeah. And I think also, you know, a lot of this has to do with recording your calls if possible mm -hmm. listening picking random calls listening to it look at to see like not to bash the rep it's not about that at all it's about to learn about from the product team the pricing yeah. the marketing because you could learn so much if the sales rep is doing the, their job correctly and and qualifying the buyer throughout the process and asking these deep questions because most of the questions that you said they or the topics that you said that you want to cover with the buyers are things that the, the rep should know. seller should be asking anyways what are right. competition why are you coming to us now what what needs to right. be fixed why does this need to be fixed Yep, hundred percent. And 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 this is the thing. What we find is this. So so, our buyers within organizations can be a VP of sales, right? A VP of product, VP of product marketing, somebody in a competitive intelligence function, somebody in a sales enablement function, somebody the CEO. Like we we could sell to anybody because the if the feedback actually is cross functional in general as well, right? Like yeah. It could be product-based, it could be sales-based, whatever. What we find is the programs that we run for clients that are the most successful are where you have strong sales buy-in, where the sales team has a culture 
of I want to know why I win and lose. I want to figure out what happened because I want to win the next one. It's like a sports team that watches film the day after a game. They want to understand what they did well. They want to understand what they didn't do well. And so when you get a sales team that has that type of culture where they're excited for you know the equivalent of film day yeah. and, and really diagnosing what's happening – then that's where we see not only the most engaged programs, but the programs that get the most out of out of what we do because the sales team, A, is listening and, and taking the feedback and, and adapting their approach and everything, but B, they're using what the buyers are telling them to go share that back with product. Look, this isn't just me saying this, right? Like think about how frustrating that is as a sales rep to be like, hey, I lost my fifth deal this month because our API sucks. Yeah. Right? I lost my fifth deal this month because people don't like the pricing model, this element of our pricing model. Can we just eliminate that or change it or do something different? And you feel like you're not you're just, you know, speaking to a to a deaf audience, right? Nobody's listening. And so being able to do it from a data driven perspective, whether it's across sales reps or across buyers, is huge for companies. Absolutely. And and there's a lot of people that are, are probably listening, thinking, now oh, nobody wants to listen to their own calls and, and do their, their own win-loss ratio of the, with the salespeople internally. But it's so right. not true. I built a team uh, a couple years back. And as soon as I left the, the company, one thing that the, the sales reps told me that they continued doing was a weekly uh, meetup between themselves to do a yep. win-loss uh, scenarios yep. and help each other out in analysis. Yeah, it's, and that's awesome, right? Because yeah. what that is, it's a culture of sharing what historically in most companies is tribal knowledge, right? Yeah. Why is that guy so good? Why does he close everything? And it's almost like you, as a sales rep coming into a new org, I feel like I have to like go figure out who the best reps are and take them to lunch five times and you know do whatever <laughs> and build a relationship with them so they'll give me the recipe. Well, that's cool, but if you can have a culture – of sharing a and then tools that allow you to share right um the most advanced ones are stuff like what what we have that's a, a portal of all your win-loss interviews so you can actually go and read what buyers are saying across deals but even simple stuff like a slack channel yeah or a what whatever where you, where you can share like the the brief snippets but there are best practices for how you codify and turn the water cooler into a digital format that you can share this across your org. But it starts with what you mentioned, the idea of a culture of, I want to know, I want to know, and I want to get better. And we're always sharpening the saw as a sales org so that we can compete. Yeah. And that, that is what company culture is, not the, uh, the free food. <laughs> right. Right. hundred percent, hundred percent. So funny. All right. So, what are some of like what are like the top three biggest reasons people aren't buying that and mistakes that companies are making? It's a great question. Like when we do win loss, the most common it really varies company to company. I think one of the one of the let's maybe break it down into scenarios. Okay, let's say they're not buying and they're not and you're losing to a competitor. Okay. That typically has to do with, A, you have product gaps or challenges, and that can be in the form of functionality. It can be in the form of look and feel, 
like in UI, it can be in the form of how you package that functionality, right? So now we're, we're kind of shifting from product to how you actually go to market with your product. I often see times where, I, you're, where our clients are losing to competitors because while I prefer your product and long-term what your product can do, I needed to buy this right now. And you didn't create an upgrade path for me. The only upgrade path that exists for me is to buy your competitor and use that, even though you can do everything your competitor does, is to buy your competitor and use that until I feel like I grow out of it, then I come to you. So there's an idea of, are you missing functionality or is your product just old and feel clunky to people versus is your product sold in a way that makes it easy for me to economically justify and get get to fit for my org. You're just in like often. a land and expand. Exactly. Exactly. And and because oftentimes companies, the way they sell and they're stubborn about it is, hey, you got to swallow the apple hole. And that, that, that feels risky. It feels expensive. It feels um, old in today's to today's buyers. Um, and then staying on this idea of competitors, oftentimes you lose because this is a game and you are going up against other competitors and you are you are coming to the game late and or you are not as a sales team clearly explaining the value of what you bring to the table relative to them. And so sometimes you're dead on arrival. That's just real. And, and the best sales reps are actually aware of that, right? I came in late to the deal. Like we were brought in as a stocking horse and I could not change the, the dynamics of this deal. And we were going <laughs> to, we had a 10% chance of winning coming out of the gates. Um, but the other thing that happens is I was the first one there and I gave them all the information. I gave them what to shop for and I didn't sufficiently differentiate, differentiate us so that it made it really easy for uh, one of our competitors to come in and sweep our, sweep our legs out from under us and take us out. That's kind of on the, on the loss to competitor side, on the loss to no decision side. Wait, before, before you continue, yeah, I, I want to you said something that's really powerful. And uh, the fact that you, when you're first, when you're the first company to speak to a potential buyer, you're setting the stage and yes. you want to set it in a way that only you can compete with it. So that when your competitors come, you're, you're, you're kind of setting the stage of what's important by saying yep. what their weaknesses are. So that yep. way, they're always comparing. Most of the time, they'll compare against who they speak to first. Yes, hundred percent. And it's it's it's. I've heard it called setting the traps, mm -hmm. or or laying out the landmines in the sales process early on, right? When you hear, um, if if you know you're the first to the table, you want to you don't want to bash your competitors. What you want to do is you want to speak to their use case and you want to lay out where you're strong in solving that use case and where you're strong relative to others solving that use case and some of the things that might be missing in or, or challenges you'll run into if you don't have that functionality. Make sure whether you go with us or anybody else that they have this functionality. Yeah. Right? And, and, and then all of a sudden, oh, wow, now I'm fighting uphill against What's been, what's been said, you're totally spot on. And, and a lot of times people think of that as like, oh, that only really happens in an RFP where like I help define the requirements in a very formal way. That's not true. That happens in every sales cycle. Yeah. 
it's easier to lay it out in black and white with an RFP or a POC document. But right. if, you, if you're just, the way you speak and the way you talk about your product or what's important, what they should be looking at, right. even in the casual conversation at the beginning, is actually setting the stage. 100%. Yeah, and speak about it. You, you nailed this, right? Speak about it to their use case. Speak about it to the pain and the problem that they're trying to solve for, right? You're not going to be able to solve your problem fully if you don't have these things. Yeah. Right? You're not going to be, if you don't have these things, the outcome is going to be this. And that helps you as a seller set in their mind what they should be caring about. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need to bash the, the competition. Just set, set the stage, set the deck in your favor. Yeah. Yeah, sell, sell to their use case. Sell yeah. to their use case. <clears throat> it's funny because we oftentimes have people that care immensely that we work with that care immensely about getting competitive intelligence. But it goes to this idea of you're competing for the buyer's money, right? Like the buyer matters. You should look at the, you should try to get to the lens that the buyer sees you at in the market because it's kind of this idea of so often you're losing to to no decision and the challenges that companies going back to this idea right why do people lose there's product issues there's there's adoption issues and how you price it to adopt there's selling issues there's also issues of how do you build value to make sure that this is happening and and when when if you're getting stalled out right if deals aren't going through then there's a few things common symptoms that we see one you aren't selling to the right person. You're selling to the wrong person, right? This person has no budget authority. They have no decision-making authority. They really like what you're doing, but they also actually aren't a champion either, right? So, so watch out for that. Another thing that happens is you struggle from a product market fit standpoint to justify the value. You don't have enough value. You're, you're a feature function seller, or, or organization, and you're not selling to the use case and the problem that's be, that's solved. And, and the classic, if you don't do this, these are the negative consequences. If you do this, these are the positive consequences. How much are the positive consequences worth relative to the negative cons- consequences? And is that delta in, vo- in dollar amount more or less than what I cost? I think all the founders' uh, ears should be perking up right there and, and rewinding yeah. and listening back to that. Yeah. Uh, like a, re- yeah. like a it, quick recap, it's, it's so important. Um, the, the, idea, the idea of understanding where value comes from for the buyer and putting, helping them understand how to put a dollar amount to it, right? Like that to me is, it's so funny to me how often companies struggle with doing that. Yeah. And if, if you're not doing that, if, you, if you're not doing that as a founder, guess what, dude, you're, you're done. You're not going to stay in business, right? Because, because I won't spend money on things that aren't valuable to me. So the ultimate test is do... Are you able to communicate the value? And then are you able to deliver that value so that yeah. they keep buying from you? And, and deliver the value because what you said before is like the features. Like there's so many people that are just selling features and, and nobody cares about the features. They care about yeah. 
they care about uh, you know the, how it's going to change their life, even if right. it's just a, their work life. It, they care about how it's going to change their day to day living. Hundred percent. Like like here, here's an example, right? I could I can, or maybe they do care about the features, right? But if I sell to you, hey, this feature makes it so that you can do this, accomplish this task very quickly without errors, right? If I say, if I sell it to you, like this feature has an error-free guarantee, boom, 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 right? Versus, what does it cost you when you guys make an error? How much manual time do you spend doing this? Okay, so I've I've established a dollar amount. I'm st- I'm now establishing a dollar amount. Well, what if we just what if our solution could just do that for you? Yeah. And there's the error rates 0.1% and it's automated and now you no longer have to spend time or effort doing accomplishing that task. Absolutely. What's that worth? Like if if you're not selling that way, you're going to have a problem. <laughs> then it's time to reevaluate and and, and right. learn learn to sell that way. If you're not selling that way, you're leaving money on the table. Absolutely. It's it's all about getting them to speak about their pain points, not you telling them about their pain. Because when, exactly. when they speak about it, it's real and they feel it deep down. And then they're open to for you to deliver a product that solves that. Yeah, 100%. All right. Uh, we're, we're getting close here on time. What What are like the three best things that salespeople are doing? that you're finding that helps with the close cross deals. Yeah. Um, it's funny right there. The first thing I'll tell you is there's no such thing as a prototypical salesperson. And you've maybe covered this before on some of your other podcasts, but I think, um, when we think of a salesperson, we think of a super outgoing, extroverted, charismatic person, the best salespeople, there's no such thing as a perfect prototype of a great salesperson. Uh, overarching categories that I tend to see with really, really good, successful salespeople, um, especially across all of our interviews. One, they have incredible EQ. They listen to people. They think about what those people are dealing with. They think about not just the, the product you're selling and how that will change their perspective, but also that person's day-to-day job and what it means for them to get a deal done in the org. What do they have to do to get the deal done? And how can I help them as a salesperson get that job done? So that the first thing is, is they have an enormous empathy for buyers and try to help them not just in understanding their product, but in navigating their own sales process. Many buyers don't buy very often. They actually don't know how to buy. So great salespeople, especially in a SaaS era, where it's no longer an IT buyer that just buys everything, right? It's now end users are making having budgets to be able to purchase software as a service or other things. The more you as a buy, as a seller, can have empathy for your buyer, not just in how you sell to their use case and get them excited, but as how you help them manage the sales process, the better off you'll be. Second thing, Great sellers have incredible motors. They never stop, right? They, they're always going and, and they're always building pipeline. They're always um, working and doing the, little, the very little things because those little things add up. Yeah. And what happens is they put tons of deals in orbit and those deals come back 
and hit later on, but they have an incredible motor. And the third thing I would tell you that great sellers do is they know, we, we talked about empathy, right, in the first one, but the third thing they do is they really know what they're talking about, right? It allows them to have empathy when they really know what they're talking about. They understand and know their products well, and they understand and know their customer well, and they understand and know the problem that they're solving really well, even better than their buyers do. Yeah. And, and, and guess what? The reason why salespeople, especially in software organizations, an enterprise software person can make more money, have a W-2 that's bigger than a CEO. Why? Because they need to know the product better than everybody else. They need to know the sales process better than everybody else. They need to know the use cases better than everybody else. They need to, and if they do that, guess what? That's why they get paid. Yeah. Right. And the and, and typically the best the best salespeople really are they they merit every dime they get paid because they know what they're doing. They work really hard. They have a strong motor, and they have incredible ability to influence because they have great empathy. They have incredible ability to influence things to happen that's totally out of their control, right? They influence an organization to spend a million dollars. They influence an organization to spend a half a million dollars or even $20,000 on something they weren't expecting to spend on because of those three things. Absolutely. I can't tell you how many times I've had the conversation with the CEO of that, hey, your your paycheck's bigger than mine and how much yeah. jealousy they're they're becomes and like how much they they don't there's resistance they'll pay but like there's resistance to pain yeah totally and, and this is the point right there, there's resistance to it but you also recognize you the great ceos recognize this and the great companies recognize this i will spend a lot of money on great salespeople. yeah because they lead in a way they may not have any zero they may have zero direct reports but they can because they do those three things, they have strong. They work hard. They know what they're talking about, and they have a, enormous empathy. It's really hard to find people that have those three things, yeah. right? And and I, I actually think sometimes salespeople they don't give themselves um, enough credit, or they aren't self-aware enough relative to their buyers about how they can lead a buyer and how they can help a buyer through a sales process. And they just kind of sit back and wait for the buyer to tell them what to do. And that's an order taker. You don't deserve to get paid a lot of money if that's the type of sales rep you, you are. Yeah, absolutely. Versus a sales rep who is on top of the process, manages the process really well, helps the guide the buyer through the sales process. Those are the best, the be the best sales reps and they earn every dime they, they get. Absolutely. Well, Spencer, I really appreciate you coming. Um, two questions. One, uh, what one piece of advice do you have for the founders and the sales leaders out there? It's a good question. So, I mean, I'm a founder myself, right? My company is two and a half, almost three years into this. Um, the advice I would give to founders is the only validation that matters to you is whether or not people spend money on your products or not. There's so much distraction for founders about raising money and hiring employees and everything else. And at the end of the day, the only person who really matters, who really matters is the person who has a wallet that will spend money with you or not. Absolutely. So, 
if you're not absolutely customer focused and obsessed like that as a founder, it's going to be a short, it's going to be a short window because what I found is, so we work with lots of companies of different ranges. I mentioned some of these like fortune 500 companies we work with. We also have companies that, you know, have 10 employees that, that we'll work with. Those companies are growing quickly because they're relentless in terms of how they focus on the customer and the buyer. And that allows them to go out to the venture market or whoever and say, hey, I'm going to raise $10 million because I'm relentlessly focused on my customer. Um, that's my advice for the, the founder. For the sales leader, it's actually the same, yeah. right? Especially in a startup, right? In a startup, the sales leader is as much an extension of the CEO as and the, and the, and the founders as anybody, right? Like their job, uh, no business exists without revenue, right? Revenue is, is king. And so you have to be aggressive in how you go after it. And the way you go after it is by being totally customer obsessed. You have to be focused on product market fit as a sales leader you have to be adaptive how do i how how do i help my sales team hit the sweet spot of our market and and find and hit the sweet spot of our market over and over and over again and then how do i work with the other functions in my org to expand that sweet spot so we can go after more and more customers but let's start out by figuring out where are we really focused and make sure that we're nailing that from a sales and go-to-market perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. I even uh, I had a podcast episode about five, six episodes ago with uh, Kevin Dixon about all about yeah. being buyer-centric. you got to be buyer-centric. Yeah. That's great yeah. advice. Uh, Spencer, thanks so much for joining us today. Is there a way for people to reach out and, and contact you or find out more information? Yeah, sure. Always happy to act as a resource, obviously, for people that are interested in this. We're pretty obsessed about this idea. So um, if you're interested, you can go check out our website. It's www.closecloz.com. Um, we have a lot of stuff there, uh, just thought leadership, things on our blog as well. We also, you can also reach out to me. Just reach out to me, my, it's Spencer at closed.com. Um, we also have another way you can find us is we have uh, later this quarter, it's not live yet, but we're going to be launching a app on the Salesforce app exchange that can help sell, sales teams get provide better feedback as well. That's something else to look out for that may be a, an easy lightweight for some of these startups that are getting started. If you're on Salesforce, that's an easy way for you to get started. So yeah, Spencer at close.com. Great. Easy. To, easy. Spencer, thanks again. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at adam at startupsales.io.